So you're listening to Deconstructor Fun Podcast. So I think you might be in a situation where you're thinking about starting your own company, your own games company. Uh, you might have that perfect idea and, and even the team you want to work with, but you're just kind of unsure what the next step should be. Or I don't know, maybe you already have started a, a games company and you're just now looking to to find that certain partner that can take you to the next level, you know, make your dreams a reality. In any case, whether you're just starting up your, your startup journey or you've taken your first steps, I really suggest you talk to Play Ventures. I can give you the basics, you know, like the fact that Play Ventures is a premium early stage VC fund that invests into gaming and gaming service startups around the world, or that the fund invests into the most promising mobile and PC free to play game studios and game service startups that are looking for more than just money, or that the fund is investing globally in Europe, Asia and North America. But let's be honest, every good fund does this. So what makes Play Ventures truly different is that the founders of the fund the founders of Play Ventures, who I known personally for a decade. I mean, they've walked a mile in your shoes, in the, in the shoes of a startup, you know, a founder of, of a startup. And they've started gaming companies and they've scaled them and they've successfully sold them to companies like Disney and King. In other words, if if you're looking for a VC that is not a not you know, not just a, a suit with a money bag, but someone who truly understands your business. I really suggest you go to playventures.vc and connect with the team. You can also find the link to Playventures in the description below and kick off your startup journey in, in the right way with the right people. This podcast episode is brought to you by App Annie, the leading global provider of mobile market data. Now, personally, when it comes to exploring the market and creating a winning mobile strategy, I do it all with App Annie. I track the top charts, rank history, get download and revenue estimates. Abani also helps me to understand detailed usage of detailed usage data of my competitors game and that's actually really helpful. And if you're in the marketing side, Abani is there for you as well. It helps you to understand what it is you need to do to increase your discoverability and how you should improve your advertising strategies. Now, combined with unparalleled service and support, there's really no reason why you shouldn't be using App Annie. So go to appannie.com and sign up and tell them hi from your friends at Deconstructor of Fun. This podcast episode is also brought to you by IronSource. Now, IronSource is one of the biggest platforms helping game developers to monetize and market their games today. And they work with some of the world's most successful game developers. Just look at any of the games you have on your phone and chances are they're working with IronSource. Now, what makes IronSource unique is the way that their platform closes the monetization and marketing loop so that developers can optimize both sides to accelerate the growth of their games. And hey, if, if you like Deconstructor Fun Podcast, you love Iron Source Level Up Podcast. And no, it's not because yours truly and the good old Joseph Kim have co-hosted some of the, uh, the Level Up Podcast episodes. <laughs> not at all. It's because the Level Up Podcast features game industry leaders talking about everything related to game growth and development. So, if you're interested in hearing from successful hyper-casual game developers, or really any successful game developers for that matter, you can check out the podcast on Apple, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundLink, or the Iron Source website. You'll find the link to the Level Up podcast 
in the description of this episode. So get you some iron source. Welcome to the second episode of our mobile publisher series. Now, in each of these episodes, we sat down with the CEO of a top mobile publisher and discussed how they should approach publishing. What is their company strategy and how do they work with developers and how do they see the future of publishing on mobile? So uh, our first episode was with Scopely's Javier Ferreira. And if you missed it, so how dare you miss it? But if you if you miss it, I encourage you listen to it after this episode. Um, or now and then get back to this episode or however you want it. They're not in inconsequential order. Nevertheless, in this episode, we had a pleasure to talk to Tilting Point's president and CPO, Samir El Ajili. We talked about the company's unique progressive model to free to play games publishing. We discussed on how Tilting Point is organized, how Samir sees the future of mobile publishing, and we also shed some light on that massive $132 million user acquisition war chest that the company has been flashing around. And hey, uh, as you rightly so are setting up meetings with, you know, Scopely and Tilting Point during the upcoming Gamescom in Cologne starting in a week, uh, you should also think about setting up a meeting with Deconstructor of Fun. Uh, you can find our contact info on deconstructorofun.com. So, yeah, let's just jump into it. Welcome, everybody, to our second uh, episode of Mobile Game Publishing. And today we're joined with Samir El-Ajili, president of Tilting Point. Hey, Samir. Hey, guys. <laughs> so so um, first off, I need to ask, well, of course, I need to ask you is like, how did you get, how, what's your background, talk more about yourself. But most importantly, I'm very interesting to know is what is it like to be a president? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> being a president is just a title at the end of the day. <laughs> but uh, basically, uh, the problem is that uh, it sometimes resonate with some presidents that you don't want to be like. <laughs> but overall, uh, at the end of the day, it means that you uh, have all the responsibility on your shoulders and you need to make things work. <laughs> that's, that's true. So, um, so, but you have an extensive background in, in game development. You've been working games for a very long time. So can you talk more about your background maybe before presidency? And as well as how did you end up at Tilting Point? Sure. Uh, you know what? I'll start by, by just saying something that I really wanted to share with you guys. Uh, first, I think you have a really awesome podcast and what you've been doing is, 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 is absolutely brilliant. It's, it's uh, you know, I, I, you can ask any member of my team. I ask them to listen to you guys all the time. So you have the Tilting Point team listening to you guys. Because I I'm think sorry for that. <laughs> really very interesting. And actually, my new thing, which is probably not the best thing, is I, I live in New York and I tend to, uh, I was telling Joe, I tend to uh, uh, bike to work when it's good weather. So I listen to your podcast, Biking to Work, and it's so interesting <laughs> that sometimes I almost have accidents. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Maybe wow. I shouldn't do anymore. But anyways, just wanted to uh, congratulate you guys on an amazing uh, channel and podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. So, um, so my background. So uh, look, I, I've been in the gaming mobile gaming space for the last 16 years, uh, which is a, a long time. And, but I spent most of my career being a, a, you know, game, at a game developer, being you know, a game maker. Uh, I spent 12 years of my career starting in 2003, very early on at uh, a company called Gameloft that I'm sure a lot of the listeners will, will know about. 
and, and as a lot of, uh, I'm sure the listeners and you guys, it, it was the early days of the uh, mobile gaming industry where we still make, we, we had about 64 kilobytes to make a game and black and white devices with keyboards. <laughs> they were all different. <laughs> Uh, uh, and it was, uh, it was, it was very fun. I, I started in that company being as an intern actually in 2003 and I rapidly grew the ranks of the company becoming a producer. Uh, eventually I moved to New York in 2005 and my mission was, uh, running a studio in, in the New York office for them and, and taking it over and, and, and trying to transform it into a hit driven studio. Um, I, I had the opportunity to. Uh, work on a lot of different games. Uh, over the 12 years at Gameloft, I worked on over 50 games. Um, rapidly, I started running multiple studios. Uh, Gameloft was a company that has a policy to really grow internally and to really, um, uh, you know, the, the team size eventually was 6,000 people. When I joined, it was about 70, it went to 6,000. Uh, my teams, when I left uh, Gameloft, were 1,200 people, so really a lot of employees, uh, which has good sides and bad sides. Uh, but um, the the major the major transition and the major the most interesting thing that leads me a little bit to tilting point here is what you know happened around 2010, 11 in the industry. Gameloft was really at the top of its game, one of the top publishers in the world, and obviously, as we all know the big revolution of free-to-play happened. And a lot of these older school companies uh, had to transition their model, transition their business, and all their processes into a complete new way of making games. Um, I was, I had the, you know, I had built fantastic teams, had worked on great projects, the likes of Spider-Man Unlimited, uh, mm -hmm. things like Ice Age Village, the Oregon Trail series, uh, a lot of Texas poker games, <laughs> a lot of various games. Uh, but the, what, what's interesting is that the, as we know now about free-to-play, is that the whole business is about running games in, in, in live operations, right? That's a big piece of the, of, of the work. Um, and the teams that I had built back then were teams that were very good at building new games and very excited about bringing a game to market. Uh, working very hard, bringing game to market, leaving and going on vacation, and then they wanted to come back and move to the next game. The success or failure is just move to the next one. And unfortunately, we know now that that's not how free-to-play works. The more successful your game is, the more you're going to have to work on it once it's live. And uh, I was, uh, especially on Spider-Man Unlimited um, and on Ice Age Village, I remember when working on these games, I, I, I had a conflict there running these teams because... I was, uh, you know, I was thinking these guys would be, these guys are great at building something new. My game designer wants to go and build something new. He's not super excited about operating the game, iterating the game, um, and taking vast data-driven decisions. Wouldn't it be amazing if there was a company out there that could help me do that, help my team do that, so that they can go and focus on what they do best versus having a game designer spending his time looking at data and losing and, and not be excited by that, for example. And that's really when I initially had the idea of a, a live game publisher, um, which I was planning to, frankly, go out and, and build. Um, and uh, had uh, had started thinking about it, wrote a business plan about it, and, and the concept was trying to help developers with free-to-play that had live games. That's my story in a nutshell. 
All right. And then basically, so you had the idea that that actually already kind of existed in, in some form. And that was Tilting Point, which is also in New York. And um, and that's that's how you ended up joining Tilting Point. But um, can you talk more about 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 basically about Tilting Point in the sense that uh, prior to joining Tilting Point and because you weren't you weren't part of the uh, the founding members of Tilting Point. Correct. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I kind of remember like there was the first part of Tilting Point and there's the second part of Tilting yes. Point. You're kind of kind of leading the, the second part. And until date, what we know about Tilting Point is the company has worked or scaled about 65 games. You have had or have, you know, 36 developer partnerships in, in 16 different countries. The overall amount of installs during the, uh, the lifetime of Tilting Point has crossed 1 billion, which is a whopping number. And there are some key games that that some some most of most of our our listeners have probably played. And games like, well, I don't know if they played Food Truck Chef, which has accumulated about twenty. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I definitely have. I definitely have. I like time management games, <laughs> but uh, but that's that's about twenty million installs and yeah. seven million revenues. And of course, I think most of the listeners do have played Star Trek Timelines, which just dropped her beam. So about 5.5 million stalls and 55 in, in revenue. And these numbers are coming in from AppAni, not official numbers coming right. in from Tilt Point. So, so uh, those are kind of your, your key games. And if you look at the news, like, of course, the, the, the year ago, you, um, you, you let everybody know, or there was a big press release that you'll be spending 132 million in annual spending on user acquisition and actually increasing that number quite dramatically from the, uh, 12 million that was stated in 2016 and the whole goal for that was as you've said to help developers grow their games while remaining independent so kind of taking what they've built and helping them to run it and um and just yesterday so we're recording this on friday 26th of july 2019 i don't know even the date because i'm kind of on vacation so i didn't even know that it's friday uh but anyway so we're recording this on friday 26th and Yesterday, you had a press release that you're you're um, you're investing thirty million into Mino Games Cat Game. So definitely big acquisitions, uh, not not big acquisition, big moves, a lot of investments, a lot of installs, a lot of growth. So can you talk more about the company, uh, how it has transformed, what it is today, and how how large you are are you guys, and so forth? Sure, absolutely. Um... So, you know, I started, I'll start going back to the original point you said, which is in, interesting, which is when I joined Tilting Point, the, t the company had already been in around for, I joined in late 2015, so the company had already been around for three, four years. And um, uh, Kevin and Dan were the founders of the company, um, they, and they, they came from a background of uh, a lot of expertise in publishing. So uh, EA Partners was where a lot of the Tilting Point employees came from and they understood publishing extremely well. Uh, but it was more, they came from the console and PC publishing world and, what, and the pay to play world. And what really happened is that when I met them, they said, how about, you know, we want to pivot to free to play. We don't really know how to do that. Uh, can you, instead of going and doing your own thing, why don't you come with us and try to, we have a brand, we have games like Leo's Fortune, which I respected tremendously. I don't know if you remember this great platformer, um, why don't you build that with us? And that, that's how I, I, I arrived there um, and, uh, and, and build uh, what Tilting Point is today. And what Tilting Point is today is the, we are a free-to-play 
publisher, game publisher, that has a very innovative uh, business model that focuses on long-term partnerships. Really, ultimately, our goal is to build long-term partnerships with great developers. Um, but we actually innovated a lot back in 2016. We're the pioneer in what I like to call the live publishing model, which is what originally I wanted to build, which is essentially uh, coming in and uh, helping developers that already have a live product. The idea behind this was that I was found out unbelievable that out of a million games on the store, um, there's only a thousand that was making money and 200 are making big money and obviously 10 that's making an enormous amount of money. But I thought initially, hey, there must be a lot of games out there that were close or could be successful and are not. And maybe instead of trying to build new games, there are places we can help developers that already have these games out there and we can scale them. Um, uh, so we built that business initially, which is this live publishing business, where we really focused and honed in on what uh, these developers usually specifically need, which is user acquisition, funding, and creatives. That's really what uh, developers that have games on the market usually need to uh, scale these games up. And we really focused in on, on, on these things. Uh, that's our live publishing model. And then we evolved and we uh, evolved this, this business into this progressive publishing, which is essentially that we are progressively building long-term partnerships. Um, and uh, we have now done this with multiple developers where we started with their live games. Uh, we were very successful at scaling them and they were very happy with the relationship and we're happy with the relationship. We get to know each other, which is fundamental. And then we decided to build new games together from the ground up. We decided to build co-development. Uh, we, for example, released um, Warhammer Chaos and Conquest about two months ago, which is our, really our first co-development game with uh, a very talented developer from uh, Scotland called uh, um, Hunted Cow, uh, which we had scaled their initial game before. So that's really our model in a, in a nutshell. It's this idea of progressive publishing, step one, is live publishing. Step two is much more uh, tailored services, for example, co-development. Got it. And Samir, maybe we could um, dive into your business model a little, little more deeply. And I wanted to start by kind of stepping back and talking about the UA fund. It, you know, 132 million definitely sounds like a really big number. Could you kind of describe how, you know, what is that UA fund? Is that are you investing off your balance sheet? Is that an external raise? Are you factoring receivables? Uh, could you talk about that fund specifically? Sure. So we initially announced, uh, we thought it was a good idea to say to the world that we had a $12 million annual fund uh, about two years ago, and that was immensely successful. Uh, we had uh, games like Food Truck Chef, uh, Terra Genesis, uh, Horse Racing Manager, uh, Photo Finish. We had multiple games that came in and, and we rapidly... Um, use that, that fund and, and we decided to grow it and announce a $132 million fund, annual fund last year. What this, this fund is and what we do is essentially we work with a debt facility, a bank, uh, the Metropolitan Bank Group, um, and we've raised money with them to be able to invest in user acquisition. And so this is, um, to answer your question, off our, uh, uh, it's on our balance sheet, sorry. We have it on our balance sheet, but it's absolutely not factored. We actually take a lot of risk with that money. We, uh, you know, as, as you know, user acquisition is about, a lot of it is about the return on ad spend 
and the amount of time you decide to push it out in time. So this is always a tailored discussion we have with our partners, whether we're looking at uh, trying to get returns within three months, six months, nine months uh, or more. Uh, but in many cases, we have money out for uh, up to six or nine months without seeing the return on this money. So it's very different than a lot of these companies out there which are just factoring, which uh, frankly are, are not taking much risk. And obviously on our side, we have interest on that money. We're paying, we're paying uh, an amount of interest. Got it. And then, you know, you, you had mentioned co-development, but I, I would say that the common perception of Tilting Point just in the industry is that you guys are mainly focused on the user acquisition side. But to your point, as you were discussing, you know, the live operating model and the co-development model, can you talk about, you know, uh, what are the other aspects besides UA that you guys are digging into? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I start by, by saying, so, you know, if you want to be in a relationship with Tilting Point, the main thing you need to have initially is a game that's out in the market. And, and so we really turned a little bit the publishing business on its head because we, we basically said, we want to make sure we're completely aligned with, uh, with you as a partner. And the best way to know we're aligned is that we know you, you've tried to self-publish. We actually, you've tried to do user acquisition, you've tried to do creatives and marketing, you've tried to do app store optimization, and you have seen the results out of it. And the value that Tilting Point is going to bring is going to become very obvious to you because we're, uh, you've done it yourself. There's nothing, <laughs> it's nothing better than having tried something yourself to you have a sense of, okay, I, I do need help on this. Um, and uh, so our offering starts always with um, specifically uh, three things. That is the user acquisition, the funding, and the creatives. So sometimes it's, it, it's tailor-made. Sometimes uh, we just do funding actually. And sometimes we, we do the three of them, but it's, it's only a mix or, or one of these three things. Um, and progressively, uh, that's what we call it progressive publishing. If the partnership goes well, if we align, if the developer wants to continue working with us, we decide to do more. For example, we build a lot of technology around uh, uh, lifetime value. We, we have things like uh, uh, dynamic pricing and anti-churn and re-engagement. So we start implementing more and more services as we go along. And ultimately, we can decide, for example, to start really pumping up funding for a new co-development and, and say, look, we've been working together for now a year. Uh, uh, we're super, we love, your, we love your game. We think it's, it, you have great technology, you understand free to play, you understand live ops, you have a great meta game. How about we build something together from the ground up? We'll invest, we'll put, you know, 10 people on it on our side that does things like PMing, data science, user acquisition, uh, creatives, and we'll build a great game together. Got it. And then when you look in the industry, there there's, does seem to be a, a few different sorts of models with respect to how different companies are approaching mobile game publishing. And in terms of what you guys are doing differently, why, why do you think you guys will be successful where others potentially have not been successful? Yeah, so I'll start by saying that I think traditional publishing does not work. Okay. Um, and I, I, I didn't know that when I started uh, moving from being a game maker, which I did for 12 years from a developer to a publishing company. But I saw that firsthand. First of all, I, I, like many developers, I did not have a great opinion about publishers. I didn't really know what they did. <laughs> it was just very clear to me. And uh, what, I, what I, I saw is that these, what I call these traditional publishers, so these publishers that take a game that's in, the, in development, in the middle of uh, being made, and their job is taking it to market. Um, 
have a lot of problems. And actually, if you look at most of them, the mobile game space have failed, uh, including, uh, so the old tilting point was this way, Flare Games was, was this way, and many, many others have attempted to do that. Um, and one of the reasons that uh, this is not successful is the concept of misalignment. You are basically you know, meeting these developers which are living their dream, they're building a game they really, it's all, they've been, you know, usually they come from big companies, they decide to with their friends and build a game together, and they have this dream of, 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 of being independent, in many cases of being independent. Um, and they also have the dream of, of being successful potentially and, and being able to build a full company. When I met those developers, in many cases, they came to see me, and this was a time of Clash Royale. I remember, they came to see me and said, hey, look, I have a game that, that is like Clash Royale, and actually a pretty impressive, decent game. But when I was asking them, what are you expecting? They said, well, Clash Royale is going to make a billion dollars. If I make a hundred million dollars, I'm happy. And my first approach was, well, you know, I think this game can maybe make five, ten million dollars in revenue. But it, I think that you're missing so much and you had to cut corners because you're a small team. You're not going to make a hundred million dollars. But already the expectations are really misaligned. And that ultimately, um, I think, leads to a bad relationship between publishers and developers. So what I'm asking myself every day is if today with all the experience I have and uh, you know, the, the failures and successes that I had building games, if I were to build a studio, would I join, would I use Tilting Point as a service? And the answer to that question is yes, I would choose Tilting Point as a service if it provides me just what I need. And what I would need is funding for user acquisition, is potentially expertise in user acquisition, and the amount of creative that the world needs today to scale. So that's really why we have this model today uh, that is really focused initially on something very, very specific to answer the need and then growing to a longer partnership if, 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 we need, if I need to. Great. And then in terms of like, you know, so you guys have been working on a lot of different games in your portfolio. Could you talk about maybe, you know, a couple of games that are doing the best for you right now and then what are those games or those specific teams doing in terms of their relationship with you or what they're doing with their games that are making those games perform better than some of the other games? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a great question. So, uh, well, we, we have a lot of uh, games in our portfolio. We have 26 games that we're working on right now in a shape or form. Uh, we actually have four co-developments, in, uh, three in production and one release, Warhammer, Chaos, and Conquest. We're very happy with Warhammer, Chaos, and Conquest. Um, and we have a few other games that you know, we've been uh, very happy with. One specific case, which I'd like to talk about, is Terra Genesis, which Terra Genesis story is amazing because Terra Genesis is a one-man game that um, uh, uh, Alex Wynn from a company called Edgeworks, a studio called Edgeworks, which he built this company with his wife and has a passion for space. Um, and he built this uh, space exploration simulator, essentially, or terraforming simulator, I should call it, a little bit civilization-like, which is, which is brilliant. Um, and when we met him, he was, the, the revenue he was generating was about $70,000 a month in revenue. We actually found him and told him, we believe that we can really scale your game. And he said, well, you know, we've, we've been trying that and, and uh, hasn't been that successful and we don't have the funds to do it. Um, and today, the, the, the game is generating $700,000 a month in revenue. 
uh, and he's been able to build a studio out of it. He's been, he, you know, he has a six or seven team members and building multiple products. So TerraGenesis is another, is one of those um, small developers that we really changed their fortune, which, you know, I'm very excited to talk about. But we also have some big games. We, we work with Star Trek Timelines, for example, which is, which, uh, is a, a top 200 grossing game. Um, we announced yesterday uh, investment in a game called Cat Game. Um, right. So from Mino Games, it's an absolutely brilliant game. The soft launch numbers are very impressive. And it's a game that I think has a good shot at being a 150, top 150 grossing game. Um, we announced $30 million in UI spend. So on that game specifically, for example, all we're doing, we looked at the team, they're very strong. We think we can build a long-term partnership with them. But all we're doing right now is monitoring the UA spend and, and funding the UA. Uh, so we were helping them just on, on that part. And we are thinking that if, if anything goes well, well, we'll do much more with the game. Great. So these are some of the examples. All right. And then, you know, Michigan and I also do a weekly news gaming news podcast. And one of the articles that was recently trending was an article by uh, Klaus Kirsting, formerly of Flare, Flare Games. And he basically had written an article that talked about having to be careful about specific publisher terms when, when you're doing a publisher deal. And he seemed to specifically be referencing UA-focused publishers with respect to these terms. So I was wondering if you could talk about four specific concerns that he raised. And so maybe the first one is that the first concern he raised was that in some cases, uh, UA-focused publishers would try and get a revenue split from all organics and, and, and paid sort of installs. And they may then scale down the amount of paid user acquisition that they do and then just kind of you know, take money from the organic installs. Uh, could you talk about that first concern? Sure. So first of all, <laughs> I, was, I was quite surprised to see class article because I found it very, very ironic. I find it very ironic in the sense that, um, again, coming back to what I said before, initially when I joined the Tutting Point, my first reaction was, wow, these traditional publishers are you know the first thing you do when you walk in the door as a developer you have to sign these 20 page uh, contracts these contracts tie in your ip uh you have to you basically stuck for four years and potentially your sequels are stuck in there uh you uh, lose control of budgets so these contracts what i thought were very were very aggressive and essentially the idea behind pivoting the company to what tilting point is today was to do exa go exactly the opposite way and to try to start with very simple, direct, flexible offering uh, where a developer can leave at any point where he sees the value you bring and decides himself to stay. So, you know, these four points that I know that these four points that class pointed out to, to me are, are, are absolutely not what we do today. So, of course, I, I can, I'm, I'm going to talk about them a little bit. Uh, but they were really the old traditional publisher model, which were trying to completely step away from building that progressive publishing model. So the point you're, you're talking about is, is getting the re revenue split from organic installs, even if you're not pushing paid UA. Right. So I don't know who he's referring to. Um, maybe there are some companies who do that. It, I find that unbelievable. We would never uh, take a revenue split from organic installs if there's no paid UA. Um, the, the point is, if there's no paid UA, you're not going to take the organics that the developer is generating by himself. Right. Uh, there, but there are some fine fine tuning there, uh, which I think that 
maybe he was trying to say. One thing is that regarding the organics, uh, there is, of course, a K factor, which is important. So yep. when you actually do spend uh, paid UA, um, you know, if you're spending $100,000 of paid UA acquiring uh, users, these users are going are, are, are gonna to be viral and these users are going to spread the word about your game. And these users are also, the, the fact that your game is increasing in revenue is going to put it up the charts. And yep. by putting it up the charts in the store, you get more organic install. So there's a K factor that basically you're saying, my UA downloads are generating organic downloads. And that's something that we generally discuss with the developer and say, look, we believe that the K factor is 1.2, is 1.1. So uh, every $1 we spend in, in UA, uh, there's 1.20, uh, basically 120%. Uh, we're going to take 20% of organics uh, on top of that. So that's, that's actually true. Got it. But, and then you, you, you did also talk about one of the other points, which is the ability to terminate. And you're saying that's not the, like you, the developers can walk away if, if, if they want to. For... Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. The, um, the points around developers walking away, well, the model is built so that we initially have very flexible and, 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 and loose terms, meaning that you come in with your test, you can walk away at any time. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a point about controlling the IP, which is totally false. We don't control the IP in the initial step of our process at all. Um, uh, so they, the, the IP is actually totally controlled by, by uh, the developer and our, our initial contracts are very simple and flexible. Of course, it's a different story when we start doing co-development, invest millions of dollars in the game down the line. But in our initial contract, that's not the idea at all. Got it. And, um, so, and the publisher being the sole decider on the UI spend, well, that's not exactly true at all. That's, you know, first of all, our intention is to build long-term partnership. We live or die what the, the partner is right. going to say about us. If we are trying to uh, rip developers out of their profits and they can't survive, it's absolutely terrible for, for us. So first of all, we, what we do a lot of times is guarantee, have minimum guarantees and agree with the developer. The developer will tell us, hey, I need $100,000 a month, no matter what to pay for my team, to grow my team, and so on. So okay. what we do, we'll define and agree that we will ensure they will getting this money every month. If yeah. it's not through UA, we will commit our, the money ourselves. So we protect a lot of times the organics, uh, or historic, we protect all the historical organics, um, and we sometimes protect the financials of the developers as well. All right, that that was interesting, and it's it's good to refer to Klaus um, Klaus's uh, four points because he'll be on our fourth episode of the uh, mobile publishing, so a couple episodes after this. But um, but let's let's dive deeper into Tilting Point's wave of working with developers. Now um, I'm kind of gonna reiterate for you <laughs> for you, Samir. So uh, first of all, I, I want to say that I really did like. And actually love playing Spider-Man Unlimited. It's an infinite runner with a Spider-Man. It's a it's a really cool Thank one. You. My favorite infinite yeah. runner back back in the day. So uh, if you haven't checked it out, I'd really suggest you do. Um, one of one of the best games from GameLoft. Um, and then you kind of mentioned a few things. So uh, Tilting Point is focusing on long-term partnerships, and you have this sort of a live publishing model. So you help with the live games. So your goal is really to um, to, to find sort of a good games and scale them. So basically, you know, find the tilting point for, for, uh, for good games to go yeah. from good to great. And, uh, and the foundation is, is definitely in the user acquisition fundings and creatives. And, um, 
and you referred a lot to this progressive publishing model where you start off with helping a developer to scale and then hopefully going with them from starting off with this kind of like a basic partnerships to go into a more deeper where you help them in co-development. You mentioned the, the Scottish uh, company, I forgot its name, something with a cow, Matt Cow. It's not Matt Cow. <laughs> Hunted Cow. Kind of like Matt Cow. <laughs> but, but shout out to Hunted Cow and their new Warhammer game. So, so that's your kind of a model. But can you describe uh, a little bit more how your business model or business relations, relationships work with a developer? Uh, more in details on how do you find the developers and you mentioned that um you mentioned a few things in finding the developers basically the first thing is that they do have to have a game in the market and and you know that's how you align with the same goal because once they have a game in the market they've kind of walked a mile in your shoes as a publisher so they have tried to scale their own game and now you can start successfully working with them together because they understand what you're doing and what kind of value you're bringing in uh, so that's that's how you. I don't want to answer these questions for you. I'm kind of like <laughs> reiterating, but that's that's the finding developers. I'm curious, how do you do find them? Like, what kind of tools you use, and how do you? Because there's millions of games. That's that's basically the question. There are millions of games. How do you know what is good, and how do you know you can make it great? So that's one. And the second one is like, how do you structure the deals, if not specifically, but more like generally, and and how do you work? with the developers. So you have two different models with the co-development and the sort of a growth funding. I don't know if you call it growth funding, but basically the good to great as well as, okay, we're working well together. Let's work further. Like, how do you, how do you work? Do you have internal teams? Do you have external teams? Like, how does that all work together? So sure. please. <laughs> sure. So, so that's the way how we find developers. So uh, what's interesting is that uh, we have, essentially we have three ways of finding developers. Um, one way, uh, which is what, usually is it drives the best results for us is that we actually, because we have so much data of the market, because we, we see so many CPIs, we, we grow so many games, we have a very good sense of which games have the opportunity to grow. Um, so that uh, gives us some ideas of what to look for. And we've developed some um, tools to scrap App Annie and Sensor Tower and all these different insights uh, um, tools out there to identify the games that we're saying, hey, uh, we've identified a theme right now that we believe is trendy, drives low CPI from our numbers, and these games have the right downloads and right revenue that we believe we can make a real difference. So the, basically we build an internal uh, automated tool that gives us a list every, every month of about 100 developers, and we're saying, hey, let's, let's try to reach out to, to them. That's the first way. The second way is much more the traditional way, the conferences, meeting, meeting developers, listening to new ideas, and also staying on the map so for something else that maybe is not released yet, but is releasing soon. Um, and the third one is uh, a lot of developers obviously reach out to us. So, you know, they hear about the $132 million funding or, or how do we get there? And they're going to uh, reach out to us to figure out if they, their game or their, their company could qualify for, for having some part of that funding. Um, that's how we found developers in a nutshell, how, how the deals are structured. Um, well, initially the deals are structured, uh, in either a ref share deal or fee based deal. And really our approach is to try to this approach of being tailor-made. So the initial deal is always, as I was saying, very simple, simple, direct with impact. That means it's going to be user acquisition with mixed with creatives and funding. Uh, but it can be a ref share deal and it can be a fee based deal. We, 
initially thought fee-based is much simpler and to start off with, and developers are going to want to work with that first. Today, it's interesting. We have some developers who prefer RefShare. So it's really a discussion we have with them. Um, and of course, as we, as we progress into uh, more that we do with them, for example, co-development is always a ref share deal. Oh, that's not going to be fee-based. It's always we're building the game together. So we're going to be 50-50 partners on the game, building it from the ground up, for example. Um, to your next question, how do we work with developers? Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, obviously, the same way that our business is progressing, the way we work with them is progressive. So initially, when we do just UA creative and funding, it's very uh, low footprint. A lot of it is done through technology. We have a machine learning uh, user acquisition tool called Dora that we built back in 2016 and continue updating. Uh, so we have generally a UA manager working with uh, building and, and we have our creative team building per game uh, up to six videos, uh, sorry, five, six uh, still art per week and four to, to six videos per week and sometimes one playable ad per week. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we're gonna have a lot of accounting people looking at uh, how we make sure that the money is being distributed and, and paid. <laughs> but essentially it's low footprint for the first part of the business. Uh, as we progress into more of the co-development side of things, I think we're much closer to, to what Scopely is doing. We, we have um, you know, product, management, product managers, we like to call them game managers. Uh, that are really running PLs, guys with a lot of expertise of, of running and operating games. Um, and we have teams of about 10 people, uh, ranging from game designers, product managers, um, C- CRM people, uh, data science, that are really uh, operating, uh, building the game together with the, with the partner. Mm. So um, I want to ask then about the uh, the sort of evaluation framework. So in other in other in other words, like how do how do I get thirty million? Just like Mino Mino Games did. <laughs> so so basically, how do you evaluate that that this is the developer you want to work with? Is it is it through your um, your kind of like research through the data of Appani and Sensor Tower? And you kind of see that or and the the trends of CPI. So you know you want to work with them. Is there anything else as you start going through this this analysis? So, so actually, the initial step, if you want 30 million, <laughs> is really a data-driven decision. And frankly, okay. uh, the way we, we turn this business on its head is that our entire progressive publisher is essentially a giant due diligence. We have to think about it this way. So the first approach is, can we scale your game? Let's test it out. If we see the numbers, we're going to try it out no matter what, no matter what genre, no matter who the partner is, we're just going to see if we're fit. Let's try to scale it. If we're seeing that we have uh, a positive return on ad spend within a certain amount of days, we're going we're gonna to evaluate and predict very uh, as precisely as we can how much we can spend. And we're going to do three rounds of testing in general uh, where, with our own money. We're going to spend you know, $1,000, then $5,000, then $10,000 over a period of a month. And we're going to say, yes, we can do it. Or in many cases, unfortunately, we can't do anything. And that's really to be very, uh, we're very disciplined about that. That means even if we, sometimes we just love the game. There are so many games that are so amazing that, you know, I play them and this is amazing. I want absolutely something. And if we can't do that, we're not partnering up today. Maybe in the future, but we're just not partnering up today. And so then, can I jump in real yeah. quick and just ask a little bit more about that? And in terms of your targets, are, are you guys looking specifically for like, 
ARP down retention targets or is it like a DX ROAS yield goal? Or could, could you just talk a little bit more specifically in terms of what, what the KPIs are that you look at? Well, the, the primary API is ROAS and eROAS. So it's ROAS return ad spend over how much time. We're generally comfortable with something we can return ad spend in six months. Um, we, longer is, is tricky for us. Um, mm -hmm. And then it's about the developer being comfortable with the concept of eROAS, eROAS being that you're taking into account some of the organics in your calculation. That's really something that, um, and the K factor we were talking about before. Uh, but that's really the metric we're looking at uh, because that really defines if you can scale it or not. Okay, and then ROAS over what, what amount, of, do, do you have that depending on the genre of game or is, are you just looking for a specific time frame? So it's, it's completely dependent on the genre of game. As I was saying, you know, six months is, is the longest we go. Our sweet spot is between one and three months, initially at lower spend. Okay. Because the big, the big difficult part about predicting scale, predicting UA is, is as you scale, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. scale <laughs> gets much longer, right? Uh, and our business, frankly, that's why, you know, our business is based on our ability to predict LTVs correctly. Uh, yep. Predicting lifetime values correctly, and we build a lot of technology around that. And, you know, when we look at our historical games, we're about at 90% accuracy in predicting this. Uh, it gives us a very good, uh, good uh, ability to not make mistakes and and uh, lose money. Okay, so so I got it. So basically, um, yeah, the first thing is, you know, as as we mentioned before, is that they have to have a game out. You, know, you have to give it a go and try to grow it. Can, and and first of all, developer has to give it a go to grow it. Then you come in and you see if you can scale it. Small investments, probably, you know, as you said, looking at one two month ROAS. And then at maximum, you go to six-month ROAS, which is, you know, in, in, in the current market, it's, it's okay, but it's not, it's not as big of an investment like a, some of the top games that are definitely looking at probably 12 to 16 to 18 to, I don't know if, if some games yeah. are even going at 24, but, yes. you know, yeah, but usually it's, it's like those games have pretty big brands and they are either franchises or have been out for, for a long time, so they have the data. But um, with this type of model, especially with you going into this sort of a, well, similar structure as with, with Scopely in terms of code development, uh, what, is, uh, what does Tilting Point's organization look like today and, and how big is the company? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if you look at the number of games that we have today, we have 26 games. Uh, 22 of them are essentially what we call the live publishing business. And four of them are co-developments. So we, mm. we, we take about two co-developments a year. Obviously, these takes much more resources internally. And uh, they're going to be only with partners generally we've worked with for at least 12 months. At least 12 months where we've identified that we're comfortable with, uh, they, they, they love us, we love them. They un we understand each other's value. They understand they have strong meta games, strong technology. Um, and they have really great passion. That's really what we're looking for down the line. That's why really our process, our whole uh, process is our due diligence to find these co-developers. Um, our company today is 90 people. Uh, we are split between uh, Barcelona and New York. Uh, we have some presence uh, in uh, Asia, in China and Korea. It's mostly business development over there, trying to scout for new developers. Um, and uh, our resources split, uh, if you look at our teams, about 60% of the teams are creatives, data, um, and growth. That's really where, so user acquisition, data engineers, data scientists, and, and creatives are the meat and bone. 
Um, but obviously, for the co-development side of things, we have much more on the product side. So we have game designers, product managers, uh, economy designers, data analysts, and so on that are really going to be more of a team that's going to be working hand-in-hand -hand from with these developers from, from the ground up. So we have four teams since we have four co-devs that are doing that. And the rest of the business is focused on live publishing. Mm. So, so regarding the, uh, the co-development, um, who is um, who's sort of a... So if you have one leader for a game, where is that leader located? Is that leader, let's let's talk about, shit, I want to say Mad Cow, it's Haunted Cow. Haunted Cow, right? Yes, yes. Uh, so Haunted Cow games, and um, they're, they're, you know, they're working on that Warhammer game of theirs. Uh, what was it called? Warhammer? Chaos and um, Conquest. Chaos and Conquest. So, so during that development, is the, uh, the game director or executive producer or a game lead or however you want to you wanna call it, or general manager, as in the case of Scopely, um, is that general... Let's call him general manager located in New York or in Scotland. <laughs> so that general manager is generally located either in New York or Barcelona. And he okay. does love trips to go to Scotland and spend time with, with the team over there. Um, Got it. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 the general answer for that. Okay, so very much similar as with the uh, the Scopely model. So that's that's basically as 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 we're, yeah. We're I think that, you know the difference with the Scopely model is. Uh, that we are generally much, uh, from what I know about the Scopely model, and uh -huh. everything about it at all. <laughs> it's a fantastic company. Um, and the difference is that our approach is we try to find developers that can build uh, free-to-play games very successfully and can put a game that, you know, in the top um, 400 grossing. We're not one of those companies that are saying, hey, we need every game to be a hit. We need every game to be a 25 grossing game where it's extremely difficult because that's where every big publisher is fighting for. And what we see is that between the top 200 and the top 1,000, that market is $10 billion. It's pretty, I was shocked to see that. And that's without ads. I think with ads, you're probably looking at $15 billion market. Um, and, you know, I found that men, like a lot of the big, the big guys are, are focusing really on the top 25, but I think a lot of independent developers would be very happy with a game that generates uh, $10, 20000000 million, which is what you are about what you are when you're in the, the 400 category. Um, mm -hmm. So the big difference is that it's, it's that is the, the, the hit driven approach that we're really not trying to do with these co-developers. And also we are going to be a little less, much more suggestive in our approach because we've vetted these developers, we'll work with them for a year, we know what they're capable of doing. We're not going to be very directive. We're mm -hmm. going to work hand in hand and we know exactly where our, 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 our strengths and weaknesses are. And we're going to try to complete each other to build a great game together. Perfect. And, and I just want to reiterate to our listeners, if, if they've skipped the first episode where we talked to Javier uh, from Scopely, it's basically when we refer to the Scopely model, which is not an, an official, <laughs> an official uh, term, uh, it's kind of grown in, in, in our discussion. So what we mean by the Scopely model is when you analyze the market, you find an opportunity and you find a perfect partner. So there's an opportunity and there's a developer that can make a game uh, to seize that opportunity, then you invest into development of that um, of that, you know, of that game. And while you in, invest or fund that development, you actually acquire also a stake in the developer. And 
if everything and as everything goes successfully and the game launches, it scales, it becomes big, like let's say Star Trek, uh, which is 100 million, gross just 100 million now in eight months. I think that was the latest release from Scopely. So pretty awesome. Uh, then you increase your stake and often acquire the developer. And that's the kind of a, like the, the happy ending for the developer is they, they, they become, and that's, that's, that kind of like aligns uh, everybody together. So, um, do you have, my question is like, as we refer to the Scopely model, uh, do you have this kind of like the same type of a happy ending where, where let's say, um, haunted cow is, you know, making great progress with the Warhammer game. And maybe, you know, the next game is even bigger than that. Uh, do you see a future where, where you would move to a model where you actually increase a stake or just buy a stake in, in the developer and, and acquire them? So look, there's something that uh, we are having done do today. Um, uh-huh. It's something that's com- not completely out of the realm of possibility. Uh, in general, with this idea of progressive publishing, it has to be something that the developer is really excited about and would want. But we're definitely, um, with Haunted Cow, with that yeah. co-development being successful, we're definitely thinking about what's ne- what next can, what, what's yeah. the next game we can do together. And to help them fund this growth, we um, we might think of different ideas to get there. Perfect. I won't I won't dive deeper into that, but but at least we we kind of opened up the um, the, the Scopely model. And um, last thing is 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 an interesting question, and that comes through the strategy and and genre mastery. So there's there's you know quite often this notion that in order to be successful, you have to have mastery in the genre where you're making games. And, and while that applies to some companies actually doesn't apply to others, but let's say, well, we talked about Scopely, let's say digit, which they just acquired digit has, has been known for pushing strategy games for quite a while. They worked back in the days, even with Kabam publishing on, on one of their games. So they've been doing, you know, strategy games for browser and then they did it for mobile and then it again with mobile and now with, with Scopely. So that's their kind of all the genre mastery. And, um, and the genre mastery is not only product related in terms of making a game for a specific genre, but also for scaling a game in a specific genre, because the, frankly, you know, the, as, as we all know, the UA models, the CPIs, everything is, is totally different as you switch from one genre to another. So my question is, how do you stay successful in several genres? Like we talked about some of your successful games, like like, you know, oh shit, I want to say Cooking Dash, which is not your game. Food Truck Chef. <laughs> Food Truck Chef. Yes, Cooking Dash is another one. But it just shows that I've been playing these these games. <laughs> yes. And um, and, um, and and the, uh, the Star Trek by the Stropker Beam. Uh, those two games are fundamentally different, not only from, from, from the game itself, but probably from the audience. And when you look at the installs and, and, and even... Uh, you know, revenue per install, those are totally different for those, for yeah. both of the game. So that just shows that even the marketing has to be 100% different. So again, I don't want to say different too many times, but different genres are different. So how do you manage this? How do you stay successful across so many genres? Yeah, it's a good question. So so the first thing that I, I would say is that, you know, I believe with, uh, I believe 100% for a development studio to be successful, they need to be very specialized. And I think you become better and better as a development studio, the more you, you continue working on a genre and the more you, you innovate um, on that genre uh, progressively and, and becoming better at uh, operating it. 
And so the studios we work with in general, especially the ones where we progress into a co-developed model, are masters at specific genres that we've identified as genres that are really something that um, has growth in the market. Uh, and so the, they're really uh, usually specify, uh, very specialized. On our side, you're absolutely right. We tend to be very, because our approach is to uh, find games that we can scale in every category, we're very open to any genre. And this gives us a very competing advantage because it, it keeps our eyes open to all the different genres in the market. It gives us a good sense. Things move and change very quickly in the mobile game market. So you might suddenly think, oh, space games don't work. And you sometimes hear developers having these generic comments saying, well, I've tried a space game. It just doesn't work. Well, things can shift very quickly. And one of our big advantages, because we're looking at the market and the whole market so much, and we're testing CPIs in so many games, we actually see the genres that are trending up uh, before, the, before some of the competition. And that can be a real added value to some of the developers, even when you're doing live ops in a specific, on a specific category and genre, we can tell them, look, push a little bit. Food Truck Chef, maybe you should push a little bit towards uh, your ads looking a little bit more like this because that's what the, the trend is. Um, now, in terms of internally our specific expertise, we do have genres that we excel at better simply because we've been working with these genres for a while. And for example, CCRPG is a genre that we've worked a lot on. Tappers and Tapper RPGs uh, with games like uh, Tap Busters and we work on a game like uh, with, called Almost a Hero. And maybe there's a new game that will come out soon. Uh, uh, games like uh, uh, SLG and 4X. Um, Hunted Cow is a 4X specialist and, and they... Um, uh, they had done a game called Operation New Earth. That was the original game we scaled. And Warhammer Castle Conquest is a continuation of that. Uh, these are really our, our core, I would say, genres that we, we master well. We have a lot of users in our network of these genres. Uh, we understand how to do uh, product improvements and, and, and user acquisition. Uh, the genres that you mentioned, Food Truck Chef, which is more simulation, um, this is something also we've been expanding a lot in. Uh, probably we're not as expert yet, but as we take more and more games and this category grows, we will become better. And narrative, there's a game called The Arcana uh, that we have in our, our, uh, our, our UA right now, in our UA process, in the life publishing process, which has been growing tremendously. And mm. I've discovered that Summertime is fantastic for narrative games. UA is very, very low because uh, all the kids are reading, uh, have time to read. <laughs> so uh, that's that's good to know um so you mentioned like that you have many 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 uh many genres many many very different ones um how do you how do you choose to enter a specific genre do you like like what kind of analysis do you do or is it more driven not more but it is also driven by the opportunity so at some point haunted cow comes knocking on your door and you look at their game like oh actually this is really interesting and you you know, analyze the market and okay, actually makes sense to invest into this and let's go deeper and let's start learning. Is that the right. process or? So our initial initial entry point is we're going to work with any game that can scale. So in a genre, we're not going to say we're, we're not going to close our genre. We're going to look at uh, social casino. We're going to look at a lot of categories as long as we can scale it. It gives us that mm -hmm. vision of the market. Uh, the question becomes uh, when we decide to do, okay, let's do a co-development together and let's, let's, let's build this game, which we do about two a year, uh, where we're going to invest a lot of funding. That's where we want to be very specific and go into places that we know very well. 
So generally, we're going to go into genres that we have had a lot of experience in, in scaling them, in user acquisition, uh, but also in on the product side. So genres that we've worked a lot with in the past. Mm -hmm. But yes, you're right. This is not something where we're saying initially, hey, I'm the president of Samir. I want to, I want to only work <laughs> on CCRPGs. It's yeah. basically coming from the market telling us what to do. The market is telling yeah. us, look at this genre, become expert at it, and after a year, year and a half, we're going to build a co-development if it's proven. Okay, oh, that, that makes sense. So um, last question for me is is um, IP. So we, we keep going to Haunted Cow a lot, so they're, they're going to get Googled now, but, but um, they work on a War, Warhammer game. Yeah. So that's an IP. How do you work with an IP? And that's, a, that's basically a question because, you know, both of us have experience of actually all three of us have experience of working with an IP uh, with an IP and let's call it challenging. But now if we add the, the third element of you have a developer, you have a publisher and you have the IP holder, that's, that's a trifecta <laughs> that, that, that some of us don't want to be a part of. So, so how do you, how do you make it work? <laughs> I'm sure Javier talked a lot about that since that's really yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I obviously have uh, worked on many IPs as a game developer and now as a game publisher. So I've seen, and there's a lot of different IP holders with different yeah. rules. So it's, it can be very different. Uh, I'll start by saying that I think that IPs provide two great advantages. They reduce risk because you're guaranteed to get some organics from these IPs. It used to be enough. It used to be great. Uh, I'm getting uh, Marvel. Spider-Man, I don't have to do UA, uh, I'm going to make a lot of money. But we know today that the, the stores are not powerful enough to do that. So user acquisition is fundamental. So the second thing they do is reduce cost per installs. And the question by, you have to evaluate when you look at IPs, how much is this IP going to reduce by cost per install? And these organics that the IP will generate, if it's something like uh, Minion Rush versus something like Warhammer, you know that the organics are going to be, in one case, very targeted, probably high LTV versus very generic, large, uh, and probably lower LTV, um, which makes things much more complicated. So we generally mm -hmm. like kind of niche IPs that are uh, with an audience that's very committed, very excited by this IP. Um, now, in terms of how we work with it, well, you know, I think um, the goal of, of what we present to developers is that we're going to handle the relationship of the IP. We're going to negotiate that horrible contract with IPs that sometimes is very difficult to negotiate. We're going to do all the long and back and forth around approvals on um, art direction and then change in art. We're going to negotiate. So we're going to relieve a lot of this work that I think falls um, on the developers, which really they don't want to do and makes them lose mm -hmm. time to be efficient and focus on the game. Um, so this is something that we handle completely. So we remove that from the, we try to remove as much as we can from the developer. Unless the developer tells us, I love it, I want to take care of it, which can happen, but it's very rare. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that, sounds, that sounds relieving. Um, so if, if people are interested who are listening to this now, if you guys haven't listened to it, we did a podcast maybe two years ago with JK talking, <laughs> working with a big IP, right? Yeah. So that's if you just scroll down through millions of episodes, <laughs> you'll you'll find one and and actually get to relate what Samir was talking about. There's a lot of back and forth uh, when working with an with an IP holder. So if you haven't listened to that, 
or haven't worked with an IP, I suggest listen to that before you work with an IP or work with Tilting Point who will handle the IP for you. So, um, yeah, I think, JK, you want to talk about the future? Yeah, sure. So shifting gears a little bit, Samir, uh, just wanted to get your thoughts in terms of what do you think the key trends impacting this the industry, the mobile game publishing industry are, and how do you expect the industry to change over the next few years? Right. Well, I could, I could speak for a lot of time about this, so I'll try to make it short and interesting. Okay. Um, I think the, the most important, the thing I really believe in is that we're going to, I don't know if it's in the near future, but we're going more and more in a place where ultimately we'll almost have custom, uh, almost have one ad per person, one advertising per person. We're going into really this customizable place where the game is going to be adapted eventually to each user in some shape or form, pricing um, uh, or even gameplay. And on the other side, the ad and the way you attract users is also going to be very specific. It's already specific to cohorts today. Uh, Tilting Point on some games has have you know over 100, 150 ads, different looking ads running together at the same time to attract different cohorts. But eventually, it will become a place where to attract Samir it needs to be a little different and to attract Joe. So we're gonna the ads gonna change. So in order to do that, the second trend is going to be technology that powers all that. Um, automation and machine learning technology, which obviously has already started in user acquisition and is quite advanced, but that's going to come in creative. It's going to come in much more on the LTV side, or like lifetime value side, on the product side, things like dynamic pricing. I think it's going to happen on the creatives a lot. In order to build so many creatives, we're going to need tools that help us build these creatives automatically, which, we've, which we're building now at Tilting Point. Um, so play that player customization idea is really one of the big trends for publishers and for developers as well. Um, one of the big trend is, is east to west, which we've been talking for a long time. I do think, I do think there is uh, a little bit of a shift there and we're going to see, start seeing more of that match between east and west and, and, and some games uh, being able to come from, from Korea and China to, to the western market. Um, and maybe the last one is obvious, but you know, streaming and, 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 and cross platforms, which are quite related. So, you know, I, when we look at games today, we're, we're not looking specifically on mobile. We're looking at all platforms and we're thinking we have an, a cross platform strategy when we're releasing games. Got and Samir, I, I just wanted to talk a little bit more in terms of the UA function over time and the trends that we're seeing. So there's a class of people who are saying, oh, it's you know Google, UAC, Facebook with their machine learning based bidding algorithms. Uh, UA is actually getting easier. And then we kind of have seen you know, with Matching to Mansion, for example, competing against Playrex where creative and user acquisition actually played a pretty significant role in terms of the success of that game. By the way, I, I know you guys do some extremely sophisticated stuff on the, on the UA side and are building a lot of technology infrastructure, infrastructure there, but could you speak to where you think the importance or relevancy or competitive advantage of UA is moving into the future as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I do think that the user acquisition on Facebook and Google became easier over time because they're giving more tools to uh, users and it's just easier to do. Now, that doesn't mean that it's easier to, because everybody's doing it, it makes the competition stronger and you have to be more clever and intelligent about how you're going to be able to run these campaigns and you have to run a lot, a lot of campaigns at the same time. Uh, 
also you have to hit a lot of different channels. So Google and Facebook are easier. The other channels are not. And the other channels need, you need, absolutely need to use automa automation uh, machine learning systems that help you, uh, you know, have a lot of campaigns running at the same time and changing bids automatically on these campaigns and changing the volume that you're running at these campaigns in a, you know, almost a real time mode if you want to be able to compete. But where the edge really, really is, in my opinion today, is creatives. I think that uh, as everybody is pushing UA and as people get, get ads, it's going to be about really showing the right ad at the right price to the right person and the right ad meaning really an ad that converts them. Because as you're going to get a lot of them and as everybody's competing for you know, games, uh, it's the one that's going to trigger you to, to tune in. So that's really where uh, the big fight is, is on the creatives right now. Right. And it, it also seems like there's, there's also some competitive advantage in terms of, you know, the ability to scale, right? Like in, anyone can compete at low scale, but then as, yeah. as you get higher and higher, then it's like, well, that, that's, that's where all the expertise comes in. So final question for me is, in your opinion, just having worked with so many mobile game developers, what do you think it generally takes to be successful in today's market? And then also in the future, what is it going to take to be successful? Yeah. So that, that's, uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, honest, obviously, building games is about having a strong team, and, 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 and it's fundamental that you have initially uh, a very strong team and people you believe in, believe in, because as you're successful, you're going to have to work on this game potentially for the next 10 years. What's amazing about free-to-play is that these games are now able to sustain a long amount of talent retained. One stat that blew my mind that I saw looked at recently is like if you look at the top 1,000 grossing, um, the average game has been there for over 3.1 years. And if you look at the top one grossing world also, you're going to see that there's been only 128 new games in the last 12 months. And out of, the, out of those 128 new games, only 20 of them are from the West, <laughs> which is quite a shocking number, meaning it's very, very difficult to enter uh, that, 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 even that top 1,000 grossing it's high enough to enter the top 100. So uh, you need a, when you, as a development team, you need a fantastic understanding of live ops and how, and think down the line, how your game is going to look in the next five years and how you can operate this game in live ops. Um, you need to have people that really make decisions based on market driven decisions. Uh, many times developers just build the games that, you know, they want to do and they dream of doing. And in this mobile market, at least, it's very difficult. You're going to naturally be, uh, have a tendency to go for gamer games, but I think you need to look at where the opportunity is and really build a game in that opportunity and space. And my general rule of thumb is you should innovate but not invent. It's really, really risky to invent. You should, of course, try to do a little bit better than, than that you've done and try to bring innovation in your design and your game, but inventing is just so difficult, you're taking an enormous amount of risk. So my advice would be, uh, put a great team together, think of a concept that actually has, you know it's going to work in the market and try to do a plus one or plus two, but don't try to invent the full wheel. Got it. Okay, well, that's all the questions that I believe we have. So, um, and, and maybe just the last point is like, if people are interested in publishing with Tilting Point, how can they get in touch with you or somebody from your team? Yeah, absolutely. So they can uh, write an email at hello at tiltingpoint.com uh, and, you know, my team is at every single conference we're all running around. I'll be at Gamescom myself. So 
you know, if you're if you're interesting, we always love to meet developers. And by the way, even if it's not something ideal that we do today, or if it's a game that's not live, but you know, we might work together in the future, we, we'd love to meet. So uh, I think it's it's pretty easy to get in touch with us. Okay, there you have it. Hello at tiltingpoint.com. All right, thank you very much for your time, Samir. Thank you very thank much. Thank you so much, Samir. And and um and apologies for everybody if there were any sounds in the background. Like and as of course, while we're recording this, we're recording through Zoom where we can see each other. So I'm I'm sitting on a on a balcony in somewhere in the South Spain. So. Apologies for all the sounds on the street if, if they, they were um, annoying. And Hashtag once again, thank so you. <laughs> oh my God. And, and, and thank you again, Samir. So well, there that, we go. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you, folks, for listening to this really good episode. And please make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next episode in, in our mobile publishing series. And finally, um, you know when you when you're at, at work and or you're working with somebody and somebody comes in and tells you like, hey man, you're you're, you're doing a good job, you know. Um, it, it, that's a that's a nice feeling. So, thing is, we like that <laughs> nice feeling too. And if you enjoyed this episode, if you really like what we're doing, it would be awesome to to get that that um that thank you in in some verbal form. And of course, in podcasting, it's the easiest thing. Just give us um, a five-star review if you feel that we've deserved all of those stars. And um, if you mind, just, just write a review. We, we love hearing from you. We love doing this. And, and it just gives us energy to, to get good feedback, well, just, like, just like you get that same energy. So anyway, keep the good karma coming and talk to you soon.